Let's pray again before we get into the message, and uh, let's ask for God to humble our hearts and give us a real hunger for Him. So let's pray together. Father, we ask now that in a day and age where we live, where there's literally 10 million options to distract us during a sermon, we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and incline us, incline our hearts, Father, to your ways and open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. And we commit this time to you, and may it be a precious, a very special, a very sacred time, we ask, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the year was 1739, and one of my favorite hymn writers, Charles Wesley, was suffering from a devastating sickness to his lungs. He was having trouble breathing, and it was difficult for him to breathe without extreme pain. So he was bedridden without, now keep this in mind, this is difficult to think of, he was bedridden without any smartphone, any social media, no TV, no laptop, no Netflix. So this forced him to read. And so since he was forced to read, he thought he would start reading the Bible again. He was going through a real dark time in life. He was struggling with a lot of doubts, struggling with a lot of fear. He was wondering, what do I really believe? What is it that I truly believe? And it was this time in his life that many would say Charles Wesley truly was converted, that he really came to faith in Christ. A year later, after God had healed him and given him some more health, he was reflecting on that time, and he wrote a hymn, that we sing here a lot at Calvary, called Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. How many of you know that song? Uh, I think you'd be a little shocked to find out the original song of that that he wrote had not just six stanzas, it had 18 stanzas. I've never sung 18 stanzas of a song in church, so we're going to do that right now. I'm kidding. <laughs> but one of the phrases in that song sticks out to me every time we sing it, and, and they're for all of us, there's some songs that are more moving than others, but these words, I think, capture what we're going to look at today. So think of these words. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. Now, how do we know that? His blood availed for me. Today, we're going to look at the three offices of Jesus that are not looked at a lot, but we're going to look at them today, and I want you to see how those offices that Jesus fulfilled is what gives you freedom. This is our liberty. This is our freedom, because Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And I don't think you need me to tell you today that sin is very powerful, it's very alluring, it's very seductive, it appeals to us. And, and we fight this sin on a daily basis. But I want you to know this. As we take communion, as we remember the cross, and we remember the shed blood of our Savior, as powerful as our sin is, the blood of Jesus is more powerful. As powerful as our sin is, the blood of Jesus is more powerful. So I want to ask you this today. How did Jesus win our freedom? Why are you free today? Why can we say we are free in Christ? And he did this by fulfilling all three Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, 
and king. So when I say think of an Old Testament prophet, who comes to your mind right away? Some names? Moses, Samuel, some other names? Isaiah, okay, these were, these were men used of God in a great way, but were they flawed? Yeah, any problems you recognize in Moses' life as you read through Exodus? He had some issues, and, and Moses was a fallen man in need of a savior. All right, this one might be a little bit more difficult, but what about priests? Think of priests that are well known in the Old Testament. Can you think of some? Aaron, very good, right, the Levitical priesthood going through Aaron. Some other names? Okay, Samuel. What about one in Genesis he's mentioned in Hebrews? There you go, Melchizedek. I paid Pastor Kyle before the service. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> No, Melchizedek. That, and Hebrews talks about that quite a bit. We'll not dive into that today. But what about famous kings? There's a lot of names that come to your mind with that, right? David. Josiah, right. Hezekiah. Solomon, right. So there's all kinds of names that come to your mind with well-known kings, and some of these that were mentioned, really great men, men used of God in a great way, but they all had problems. They all had issues. They were all fallen. But when you look at Jesus as the perfect prophet, priest, and king, you can't say that about him. Absolutely perfect as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. Let's break this down a little bit today. Turn your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. That's where we'll start today. Let's examine Jesus as your prophet. And as your prophet, Jesus instructs you. He guides you. He teaches you. So in the Old Testament, the prophets had a responsibility. And that responsibility was to convey what God said. So the prophets would say, and you know the phrase well, Thus says what? The Lord. And so Jesus would often say this, it is written. But he wouldn't just say that. Instead of saying, thus says the Lord, Jesus would say, but I say unto you, because Jesus is the Lord. Look at verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you would. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you. From your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. When you read the Old Testament and you read of prophets like you know, Moses and Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, they were commanded by God to speak things to God's people like the law and the covenants and judgment and sin, warnings about sin. They also spoke a lot about a future kingdom. And in fact, 40% of your Bible nearly, roughly, is about this future millennial kingdom that is going to happen sometime in the future. In the Old Testament, the prophets were a mouthpiece for God. They would speak God's truth. But Jesus, as God's final, sufficient prophet, has done all of this for us. Now here's what you have to keep in mind about the Savior. Jesus not only spoke the word of God, 
Jesus is the word of God. That's what makes him different from Moses and Jeremiah and the other prophets of the Old Testament. He came into this world because of sin, and then he proclaimed the truth that we need to repent, we need to turn to him, we need to believe on him, we need to trust his word, what he says about himself, and then he also proclaimed the good news, pardon, forgiveness of sins, that we can be justified, accepted by our creator, by faith in him. So, We would say Moses was a great prophet, right? He was a great prophet. God used him in great ways. But Jesus is Lord of all the prophets. Christ is above and he's supreme of all the prophets. And as the final sufficient prophet, and this passage in Deuteronomy 18 is significant, as we just read just a little bit ago, because this passage is the same passage the apostles alluded to in Acts chapter 3. Specifically, verse 22 points back to this exact passage. And so we find here as Christ, as our final prophet, points us to our own sin, and not just that, to our need of forgiveness of sins that is found in Jesus alone. When you read the words of Jesus, when you have to come to a conclusion... With You can't humbly look at the words of our Savior and not come away understanding, hey, I've, I've got some issues of selfishness in my life. I don't meet his standard. I, I do not meet the standard of righteousness that God demands. I need a Savior. We recognize our own blindness to sin, realizing I don't see the world accurately on my own. I could have my own opinion, and I could have my own viewpoint, my own way I look at things, but I need God's word to teach me how to properly look at the world. This is the beauty of scripture. Scripture teaches us how to look at the world correctly with wisdom, with the, with the eyes that God wants us to see this world. Not, not in the way that we feel or our emotions or basing it on our feelings, but looking at it with objective truth from God's word. So, in a world of condemnation, where there's, there's some that look at everything through, through, the, through the lenses of trying to find something wrong with it or looking at people in the same way. Have you ever met somebody like that? And no matter who it is they're talking to, they always try to find something wrong with that person. And in a world of condemnation, Jesus tells us to come unto him. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In a world that says, live your best life now, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you may die, Jesus tells us something different. He tells us this, in Matthew or in John 5, verse 24, he says, he who hears my words and believes on him who sent me will not pass into condemnation, but is passed from judgment into or unto life. So we realize right now in this flesh, and this body that we're living in, this is not our best life now. Our best life's in the future. And I trust you look forward to that. And in a world that says where most religions start on the outside and work their way in and tell you to modify behavior, change your own behavior, become a better you, Jesus doesn't tell you to become a better you. Jesus tells us you need a new you. 
You need a new life. You need a new heart. You need a, a heart that's transformed. So unlike the Pharisees who represent a lot of the religions of, of today in many ways, that, that start on the outside, Jesus said the reason you steal, the reason you lust, the reason you have these fightings amongst yourselves is, is not because of the outside, it's what's going on in the heart. That's where all of this comes from in Matthew 15. Here's another thing we find from the words of Jesus. In a culture that degrades other human beings, in particular women, that degrades women and looks at them as objects of lust and says they're nothing more than objects that are there to serve you, to gratify your own sinful desires, here's what Jesus does. Jesus elevates womanhood. He elevates womanhood in such a way, in Matthew 5, he says, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, what have you committed? What does he say? What's the word he uses? Adultery. He says that's adultery. So he doesn't degrade womanhood. He doesn't degrade humanity. He elevates it to its rightful place as image bearers created in the image of God. And in a world where it it seems like we say goodbye too much, where we never have a loved one who we think has lived long enough. We never have a friend who we think has, has lived long enough on this earth. We always want them to be here longer. Jesus tells us comforting words like this. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. Do you understand here how the words of Jesus have such a powerful effect on our hearts? And Jesus is our final prophet. Remember, he doesn't just speak the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. But not only that, look at another office that Jesus fulfills. And that's as your priest. As your priest, Jesus prays, he intercedes on your behalf. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 9 if you would. And this is where we're going to camp the rest of the message, this, this shorter message today with us observing communion. One of the most comforting phrases you could ever hear, some of the most encouraging words is when a brother or sister in Christ comes up to you and tells you, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm lifting you up before the Lord. And you've been encouraged by that. I've been encouraged by that. A little truth to keep in mind here and something to understand in in regards to how Jesus prays for us In the Old Testament, you had what was called a high priest. And that high priest was a mediator between a holy God and sinful people. And as a mediator, the high priest would enter into a place called the Holy of Holies. And he would do that how many times a year? Help me with this. One time a year. And he would do that on a specific day. And that was the day of what? The day of atonement. And he would go there and he would sprinkle the blood of of a lamb, and they would also use goats and other types of animals, and he would sprinkle that on the mercy seat for the sins of the people and also for, for who else's sin? His own sin, right, because he was a sinner. And I want you to look here at at Hebrews 9, look at verses 11 through 14. You're going to see the contrast between those high priests and our perfect high priest, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, but he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the punishment or the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Old Testament high priest would do this year after year after year. But praise God, we have this knowledge today. Jesus doesn't die for us year after year after year. It is a finished, it is accomplished, it is an accomplished fact. Because Jesus died how many times for our sins? One time. So one, what we're going to do here today is not here thinking of that Jesus is dying for us once again. What we're celebrating is an accomplished fact. That Christ has died. Jesus has been buried. And he's been risen again from the dead. So he not only offered the Old Testament high priest the sacrifice. He would have to do this year after year after year. But Jesus offered this sacrifice only one time. And as John chapter 19 teaches where Jesus cried on the cross, It is finished. Unlike, but like the high priest of the Old Testament... We find Christ who entered the holy place, but unlike the high priests in the Old Testament under the law, they offered up a sacrifice. Jesus did not just offer up a sacrifice. Jesus offered himself. And he could do what no lamb and no bull and no goat could ever do. He washed us clean of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And he only had to do that one time. And throughout life, we have people who represent us in a number of ways. You have those in Congress who represent you. You have those in the Senate who represent you. Possibly you have an accountant or you have an attorney who represents you. But I'd ask you this. Who represents you before your Father in heaven? Who represents you? It's not Calvary Baptist Church. It's Jesus, right. Thank you. You made that illustration easy. I'll go on to the next one. You have one advocate, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. So when we sin, we don't come before God, and he doesn't accept us because we promise we'll never do it again, and because we have such a great track record, or because we have such strong willpower. We come before God based on the righteousness of our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one who represents us. It's Christ and his righteousness. And we live in a world full of condemnation that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. There's, there's a number of people, they may look down on you for any number of reasons and they may say, I'm better than you because of their education or possibly their looks or their background. They might think their marriage is better than yours or they might try to compare their children with yours or they might try to compare their own righteousness with yours and say, look how much better 
I am than you. And in a world where others look down on so many other people and it's full of condemnation, Jesus doesn't condemn us. Instead, Jesus represents us before his Father in heaven. And he asks this question, what is Jesus doing right now? And here's what he's doing. According to what this book teaches us, Jesus is interceding for us. He's praying for us. And he prays in such a different way many times than we pray. Anyone here, you're willing to admit that maybe there's been a time or two where you've prayed and you've been weary and you've been so tired that you've actually fallen asleep when you pray? How many of you would be willing to admit that? That's happened, I think, to all of us. Here's the wonderful truth about about our Savior as he intercedes for us. As Jesus prays for us, as he intercedes for us, he never sleeps, he never slumbers, he never grows weary, he relentlessly intercedes on our behalf. And Jesus prays for us, he prays for our sanctification. We read in John chapter 17 that in his high priestly prayer, he prays that we would be one together in unity. And I'll get into what that looks like in just a couple of weeks, Lord willing, He prays, and as he prays for us, he guards us. And here's what we are as God's people. We're his flock. And as our good shepherd, he protects us. He watches over us. And everything that he does in our lives has been ordained by the Father for our good to make us more like his son. He prays for us. And as our great high priest, he not only offered a sacrifice, He offered himself. That's what we remember today when we take communion. But not only that, as your king, Jesus is your perfect authority. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, if you would. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8. Before we get to that, let me ask you this. Have you ever been disappointed with a presidential election? Let me see your hands before. If you've ever had that happen, you've been disappointed with a presidential election. How many of you have ever been disappointed, and I don't want names or, or examples, this isn't the time for that, but you've been disappointed with local elections before. You ever been disappointed with that? You ever been so disappointed that you actually had kind of a fear, maybe a concern as to who wins certain elections or the outcome of certain elections? You know, in this fallen world, here's what's going to happen every time. Authority will always disappoint. And you, in positions of authority, you will always disappoint those under your authority. Somehow, some way, that's going to happen. But as a Christian, here's where we take great comfort. Our king, who transferred us, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, I believe, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, that king who rules and reigns in our hearts, he will never disappoint you. He will never let you down. And I want you to look here at Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 8, and how this kingship of Jesus kind of works out here. Look at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. So he's going to read from Psalm 8 here. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. 
You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see yet, or we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I want you to think about this for a moment. These verses, I believe, will most fully be manifested or realized in the future during a thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where Jesus will come and he will return to this earth after a seven-year tribulational period. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives right outside Jerusalem there, and he will set up his earthly kingdom, and he will rule and reign on David's throne, which he is ruling and reigning, but not on David's throne And not in the same way that you would think of Jesus ruling and reigning during a millennial kingdom. Now I want you to think of this for a moment. Jesus does rule and reign. But where primarily? It's in our hearts. He rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. I want you to think, during the time of Jesus when he was here on earth... His followers wanted an earthly king. They wanted a military king. They wanted a political king. They wanted somebody who would destroy the Roman Empire. But here's what they did not want. They did not want a king who would rule and reign over their hearts. And that's what Jesus came to do. To rule and reign over our hearts. So I'd ask you this. What kind of king do you want in your life? What kind of king do you want? Do you... Do you want a king on a political platform? Do you want a king who is interested in all of our pet political issues? Or do we want a king who will rule and reign over our hearts, like the Lord Jesus Christ does? Do we want him ruling and reigning over our lives? And that's what Jesus came to be, king over our hearts. And here's the wonderful truth about this king. He will never die. He will never be dethroned. He will never be voted out. He will never be exiled. He will never be defeated. And this king is graciously given to every single one of his children eternal life, forgiveness of sins, adoption into God's family, justification by faith, the truth of his word. And Jesus is the only one who can absolutely be trusted with absolute power. He's the only one who can be absolutely trusted with absolute power. And one of the greatest comforts you have is knowing this king, knowing him, trusting him, realizing he's the only one who can deliver you from your greatest enemy, your greatest fears, the greatest problem that you have, and that's separation from your creator because of our sin. And yet this king who came to serve, served by dying for us on the cross so that everyone who comes to true faith in him will have eternal life by trusting in what he did, in his perfect sacrifice, in rising again from the dead. And even though the vast majority of the people in this world, well over seven billion of them, do not bow to Jesus as king, we realize as Christians who take God at his word, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And even though yesterday roughly two billion people watched a monarchy and watched a royal wedding and many were excited about that and that's great, beautiful couple and you wish them the best, But not every knee will bow to that monarchy. 
And that monarchy is fragile. But every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our king. Now what kind of king would you rather have ruling over your heart? A temporary one or the eternal son of God who is God in flesh? Eternally God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's the only king who will fulfill all of his promises. Every single last one. You can totally trust his word. And you were made, friend. God created you from the little child I just held and prayed for just a few moments ago to you. God created you to worship him. And the only way we'll ever be satisfied, the only way there's ever any type of satisfaction in life is to live and function the way God created us to function. And that's to worship him. And that's to love him. And that's to adore him. And that's to bow to him. So our prophet, our priest, our king, he both secures and he assures us of our freedom, of the freedom that we have in Christ. I'm going to pray. We're going to take a few moments here to sing a song, then we'll come and observe the Lord's table. Let's pray and prepare our hearts as we transition to this time of communion. Father, we praise you for this, this ordinance, this remembrance we have as a church family. May you find us faithful Guard our hearts, and Father, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said together, amen.